Welcome to The Last Week on Earth with the Global Arena Research Institute. Today's guest is Tony Curzon-Price, strategic advisor at the UK's Cabinet Office and an advisory board member of ours. With the polemic of tech-positive and tech-negative perspectives discussing the future of work, can we highlight more tangible explanations for geopolitical as well as societal activity other than values and identity, using technology as a tool, not a machine, and what are the limits to social understanding and society self-understanding? Enjoy the podcast and please subscribe and share. I'm interested in what the relationship is between the technology disruption that we're going through and the strange politics that we've been through in the past 10 years. And I guess one of the questions, you know, the, the questions are, well, is there a link? There are some parallels with the 19th century. And, you know, part of that parallel is the distinction that the 19th century made between tools and machines. What is the difference? And then if it's if there is this this, you know, important difference with between the two, then and that partly explains why we've got resentful politics. And what do we do about it? How big a fix does the system need in order to have all the benefits of technology and of machines without having the, the awfulness of it? And are we heading for a time, you know, is, is this, this kind, the innovation that we've got here, what is the evidence that we're heading for a really big bit of technological unemployment, something which, which has been avoided in the previous waves of industrialization, why should we be confident that it'll be avoided again? And if it's not avoided, what do we do? If you were to be on the side that you have to argue that it's not going to be a, a complete disaster. So, so, I mean, on the one hand, I'm, you know, so, so let, let's take, there was news this morning in the, so Amazon has just opened its first non-US physical store here in West London. It opened this morning. And as we all know, this is this is a kind of it's you know the Amazon store is a box with shelves in it, lots of surveillance, and you walk in, and you pick your stuff off the shelf, and you walk out again, and it's linked your face and your behaviour and all the rest of it to your Amazon account, so you don't need to worry about checkout, which obviously is great, right? Who who likes queuing up at checkout? Who likes that unbelievably idiotic thing of having put everything off shelves into something and then taking it out again, incredibly inefficient. It was never part of the good life to have supermarket checkout. So, you know, if someone were to say to me, oh, all these jobs are being destroyed, I'd say, look, the supermarket, the job at the supermarket checkout was not a great job. And doing the supermarket checkout was not a great job go a generation before of shopping technology so you had in in the generation before self-service of course you had the person behind the counter and it's quite an interesting model I, it you probably did you still have some of those in in check here i mean I, I remember you go into the shop the person they're usually a few people perhaps a family behind a counter and you say oh i'll have some of that and i'll have some of that and i'll have some of that Obviously, you know, butchers and, uh, and, and cheese shops are kind of like this still. We have, and, we have loads like that. And definitely yeah. all the butchers are like that and a bunch yeah. of stores, yeah. And I guess, you know, there it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because from our perspective, obviously, for almost everything, self-service won against that model. But that model 
preserved was preserved because people had the shops, they had the clientele, that's how they did it. And then it got reinvented in the kind of, if you want something that's a little bit special or that someone has taken real care over and knows how to select and you have your favorite cheese merchant or, or butcher or wine merchant, or whatever, you, 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 you go and do that. So that survived. But it's quite interesting that our attitude towards that is, oh, that's something special. There's human interaction. There's choice there's care in some sense that has been taken over the whole thing and the self-service has become what we don't care about in a way all this to say doing these activities were never part of the ends of life they weren't part of the kingdom of ends in you know in Kant's uh, vision of it this is it is not treating people as ends in themselves to put them into a job where they all day scan things and check out and have an essentially dull existence that's there that, that they're only uh, participating in because it's a means of subsistence that wasn't that wasn't meant to be an end in itself and the same with you know automated cars okay so you get rid of all those uber drivers of the jobs that they could have this is a good job in a way fine you get rid of those but when was driving an uber a, a way to spend a human life in that sense, that's the tech optimist position, that we're getting rid of drudgery. This was in the Danny Roderick interview, wasn't it? Getting rid of bad jobs. Or that bad jobs have been been a big contribution to some of the bad things that are going on. Yeah, there's bad jobs. There's no jobs. There's also the category, interestingly, there's the, there's the uh, David Graeber category of bullshit jobs. I think bullshit jobs are quite interesting. The, in the Graeber category, the bullshit job is, it's its not the checkout, because in the checkout, you know, at least you see exactly, you know, you understand what you're meant to be doing and why you're necessary and all the rest of it. And, you know, you're obviously directly helping people in some vital sense in that they have to do this. In the bullshit job, you're pushing paper around usually, and you have absolutely no idea what, wh- why this is adding to anyone's welfare in any way you're 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 doing something and you do not understand how in the scheme of things this is this is a good thing to be doing i think one of the one of the examples he gives is is processing insurance claims it's kind of work that cancels itself out that's entirely about the way in which we organize the complexities of living together in graeber's bullshit jobs people you know the reaction to bullshit jobs is alienation or burnout or something like that they just hate it they're often white collar jobs and uh probably decently paid but they make no sense and i and one quite interesting thing actually is that a lot of the technology you know things like gpt3 it's being used to automate letter writing or you know automate uh uh uh, doing automated text processing of various sorts, treating text as data. Well, it's going after those jobs. It's going after the bullshit jobs. And of course, so again, on the tech optimist side, you've got this view that says, these were terrible, terrible jobs. One thing I, one thing I liked in uh, one of Harari's books, I think, I think the, his, his, I can't remember what it's called, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century or something, he makes this point, which I think is uh, is important, uh, which he says, he says, 
you know, it was really awful being uh, being at the receiving end of exploitation, which was the which was the is and was the 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 main experience of many many people in work. Uh, you know, having to having to, to obey, having to uh, obey the man, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Even worse, he says, is not to be needed at all. Right? Is to be superfluous. And I think that's the question: is you should hate exploitation, but should you hate even more being of absolutely no use? So if you were being exploited, at least you know it's not much, right? But you were in a, you had some power, right? Because someone depended on being able to exploit. But what if they don't need you at all? I'm I'm turning back into the tech pessimist here, which I was meant to be taking the tech optimist side, right? The tech pessimist side is. Okay, so what happens when we've got rid of these jobs, which absolutely, admittedly, are not ends in themselves? What would you say to yourself then, if you're speaking as the tech pessimist? Do you see a positive way forward? If you had the power to now decide the pathway towards it working in the future and towards it not being a disaster with tech and jobs, what do you think that path could look like? A realistic path, but you have ultimate power. You're God. Okay, so let's first paint the 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 good outcome. So the good outcome is one in which the machines have indeed taken both drudge and toil and bullshit work away, in which people find meaning in their lives from fulfilling tasks, each their fulfilling tasks, uh, fulfilling activities, and we we end up in a world of relative plenty, living within our environmental means, but nevertheless um, enjoying human pleasures and human company at a scale and with a degree of accessibility for everyone that we had never thought imaginable. So that's the positive vision that we have to somehow or other get to. The Silicon Valley crowd obviously sees the problem and has said UBI is the answer. And maybe there's something to UBI, universal basic income. This is quite 19th century. There is a 19th century sense of this in that what the steam engine, what the factories did in the 19th century was to, to on a massive scale, make skilled labor redundant and able to replace it with completely unskilled labor. And in a sense, we now make unskilled labor redundant and we completely replace it with machines if you look at, at this problem from the from the point of view of uh, of an employer or of a big corporation it makes absolute sense to invest into technologies that will basically eliminate the the human contribution you don't have to deal with sick leaves you don't have to deal with the unions you don't have to deal with the security of the job stuff like that the corporations are driven by profit-seeking boards, obviously, and profit-seeking stakeholders. What would be the incentive? I cannot imagine how to push the corporations to something which is against their, like, the first instinct. The corporations that are so present to us in this phase of uh, automation, especially the, the platforms, if you remember 20 years ago, almost to the, to the month, right, with the, the crash of the first tech bubble, people were saying, all this stuff, there's no way to monetize it. It's never going to turn into profits, right? At that time, 
there was a kind of conception that all this was being done. It was all being done with free and open source software, but it was unmonetizable. And in a way, what we came out of that tech crash with was a whole lot of infrastructure uh, and a whole lot of code and know-how and, and a whole lot of investors who thought, well, you know, give up on it. What actually happened then was a, a kind of a slow and steady monopolization. It's not as if that monopolization was baked in, right? I mean, you know, you know, Google had this fantastic product. It didn't know how to monetize really for quite a long time. And it seems to me that actually what antitrust is just waking up to, again today, I think, did I see that the EU is opening a case against Apple for, for App Store pricing, that the, the UK's competition authority is doing the, doing the same? That, of course, doesn't change the nature of the, doesn't necessarily change the nature of the work, but it certainly changes its power to transform things because its power to transform things comes from the sheer scale and profitability of, of these players. Anywhere. Do you think that a society is quick enough to sort of absorb and accommodate to the, the changes that, or, or the transformations that is changing their they work outlook or the job market and you know and because i mean quite honestly i think they're slow they, they're much slower uh, than the technological and, and, and job related uh, development so so did you see any or did you think about any practical solution as to how to improve the adaptability of of society as such or you know something that 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 we can try to do in order for the people not 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 to be helpless basically so i look i totally agree with you Michal. I, I th that's right i mean do i think that we can uh, be agile in our response probably not but what does that mean historically right so it seems to me that if we think about the last time power and wealth was concentrated in this way so late 19th century the the, the railway barons in the us for example that took a generation of that to deploy and they deployed, they accumulated, they transformed society, uh, whether it was railways or pipelines or oil or, or, and then finance. But what then, what happened over the, after that generation or two, over the next few generations was once it had done that deployment phase, then it got tamed as it were. So I guess there's, there's, there's a kind of, almost a crossover, a, 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 linking, a linking from that age to this age in, in AT&T, the, the company, I think it's the company that was, that originally, that came out of the company that Graham Bell originally founded on the basis of telegraphy, right? And then AT&T, of course, becomes a kind of a public utility that does fantastic work, fantastic research. It has a monopoly of, over, over telephony in the US. It has come to an agreement over how that, monopoly, how that monopoly will be run, and it gets run more and more in a public interest kind of way, which they interpret as being pour this into, into research. And they, uh, they develop transistors, and they patent the transistor, and the, the regulator then says, uh, they force, forces them to openly licensed transistor technology. And out of that first set of, of monopolies, 
then regulation, you get this next set of, uh, of transformations, right? You then get, of course, the unshackling of AT&T through its breaking up in the 1980s, which is kind of exactly the moment when, which lays the, the groundwork for what for, 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 the, for the platform monopolies. So we're not going to be fast enough. But what's, uh, historically, what has to happen is deployment. And it, things are going to be utterly transformed by this. And then we need to turn into utilities, socialize, turn into good corporate citizens, and essentially take the rents out of. So society is slow, but in the end, it's strong. I've seen an article, and it's linked to the general public societal frustration and uh, and uh, extremism and, and the fact that people don't see their future, that there are, there are first generations of Americans that think that their future is will be worse than, than, than you know, their parents, stuff like that. And there was one article, it was maybe two single causality sort of article, but I would like to hear your opinion about that, if you don't mind. Basically... Uh, it, it said that, that, that the situation, and it was specifically about the industrial boom in the United States after the Second World War, the golden age of, of the U.S. industry, that it was such a unique set of conditions in the area of industry. This is never going to come back, and, and we better get ready for it, because after the Second World War, obviously, the industry all over the world was depleted, while the U.S. could could keep churning out things, which people elsewhere would be buying. And, uh, and, and and sort of the twist of it was that we keep some sort of a nostalgia over, or not we, but the, the, the U.S., the, the now frustrated U.S. people, that they are basically, it's more of a nostalgia of times that will simply never, ever come back unless, in terms of industry, unless that those unique uh, conditions w- would happen, which we hope will not. And, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s and 90s were still in sort of in the wake of the post-war boom in industry. So first, you know, what, what, I mean, what would you think about this argument? But second is more general. I've been following that that sort of populism frustration, the yeah. anger of people for the past maybe six years is something that I was trying to grasp. And uh, first, I've done a little data research and uh, it showed that there is like, in every country, the conditions or the variables or the, the, the factors are different. You cannot really say that it's fear of technology or lose of job or whatever. It's so different. It's so different in every in, in each country in Europe. I was at European-based research. And second, I found that, that, that this anger and this frustration is real. It's not only fueled by the media. They obviously help it. But it's not only the social or, or the media as such, digital media or whatever. There is a real anger and real frustration. So, I mean, how would you square these two things together? So I, on, on the U.S. one, I, I'm sure you're right. And, and, I, and I think that I would add that, you know, as most nostalgias are, you know, one doesn't want to scratch under the surface too deeply of what that supposed golden age was, right? I mean, one point that's been much made is that a lot of this was about men. It was about masculinity, right? Those, the American working class job in the factory was a, was a man's job. And one of the famous now piece of work by David Orter at Harvard that basically shows how things have gone for men without university degrees women without university degrees, men with 
university degrees and without university degrees since the war. And what basically happens is that everyone's going up, everyone's going up, uh, you know, uh, up and up and up. And then by the late 70s, you get a divergence and it's men without university degrees that, uh, that stagnate. Everyone else actually continues going up. Of course, the, the educated got much faster, but actually women without university degrees also continue to go up. And the, the reality of, the of that golden age of the disappointment is also a reality of men losing their status, or at least working class men losing their, their status as the kind of, you know, as the, as the big guy, as the king in the house. As the as the bread earner, all the, all that stuff, and you don't want to be in a world in which they're in that position in the first place. So you don't want to regret it's going, but you also completely understand the social trauma that's created by that kind of shift on a mass social scale. Women in author's work, it's relatively clear that those women without degrees have gone into service sector jobs, into caring jobs. A lot of a lot of care for, for the ill, for the old, a lot of clerical jobs, quite a few customer-facing jobs. And, of course, you know, that's somewhere where wounded masculinity finds it very difficult to find meaningful existence. The, your point on, your second point, which is on, we should stop all this general theorising because it's all very particular what is, what's going on in each place. I certainly don't know enough to... To, to counter that. And I think what you say is very, very interesting. I, I'd love, of course, would love to say, well, look, how does it correlate with age? How does it correlate with ethnicity? All, all these things. And is there no similarity? I, I certainly think there was a lot of discussion at the time of Brexit. Was Brexit and Trumpism, was it the same thing? And of course, it's not the same. It's wrong to reduce one to the other. But at the same time, I, I, th I think it would be a pity to completely lose a sense of, you know, of the spirit of an age, the spirit of a time. And I think that spirit of an age is in a way more and more plausible because we share so much. Because, you know, one of the things which globalization through the Internet has brought us is so much shared uh, cultural understanding. Although it'll, it expresses itself in very, very different ways, we are subject all of us in all countries to these forces of globalization, of informational globalization, of being in this weird information stream of big geopolitical events. I mean, I, I think that, you know, something as monumental as the arrival of China on the scene, not as a political entity, but as, a, as an enormous economic force, is, is something which, again, we all share and we're all living through these complicated waves. I have no doubt that you're right, that this expresses itself in very particular ways in every place, in every person differently. Yeah, well, I think that you said in slightly different words pretty much exactly what you found in terms that the frustration is real, it's not artificial or, or I mean, it's, it's being fueled by some power-seeking creatures, but the frustration is real, uh, the manifestations are different, and, and uh, the causes might be different in, in their like particular nature, but the, the aspect of the times is one of frustration and dis dis disillusionment, that, that, that's for sure. 
Uh, by the way, uh, the Chinese parliament is going to approve the five years economic plan, the five years plan tomorrow. Obviously, they're going to approve it. There's no other way around it. And it's it's interesting to see what's what's in the plan. And then one of the, the key movement is the, the decoupling from the dependency on, on U.S. technology and making very clear ambition to, to overtake the U.S. as global economic powerhouse. So China is yeah. that's, that's definitely, well, it's going to be interesting to see what, what exactly yeah, yeah. is coming out of it tomorrow. That's definitely, obviously, though, that, that's, that's what is uh, firing China up. I have to say that knowing a little bit, a, f- a few corners of the details of, for example, silicon chip design and silicon chip manufacture, they're going to have a very hard time. You know, that, one of the things that I often tell people is that, you know, that there's, there's a little bit of circuitry that reads, that takes the signal that comes off a hard disk drive's head and corrects it for errors at incredibly high speeds and sends the bits over to, um, you know, to the processor, essentially. And, and that little chip, the, the, the re-channel chip, is, is a piece of technology which almost no one in the world can build at the kind of speed that's needed. And lots and lots of people have tried. It's a, it's a profitable market. You know, it's a, it's a great market. But there are basically three American companies. I, I mean, I, maybe they've merged, etc. There used to be three American companies that could do this. It's, it's an, these are extraordinarily difficult. The barriers to entry in this stuff is really high. And, you know, which is why Trump obviously went for silicon as being the, the way to throttle Huawei. It's, it's going five years. I mean, look at Taiwan. I mean, Taiwan is this stunning success in terms of silicon fabrication. But, you know, the idea of reproducing that, I mean, I know they're incredibly ambitious. They set these wild goals and they achieve them. I will be surprised if they get a top cutting edge fab facility that keeps them in that kind of technology in the next five years. I, I will be I will be full of admiration, but very surprised. I'm not sure. I haven't obviously haven't seen the details of the plan. I don't think they're aiming for a superior microprocessors to have within five years, but um, they need to be able to produce at least something, <laughs> which they're pretty much not at this point. And that brings me to to the point that uh, also it was either today or it was yesterday actually the congressional report on the U.S. technology, and they are complaining about their, or, or rather their, their dependency on the Taiwanese uh, microprocessor uh, producers, uh, which again sort of shed a lot of light on what's going to be happening with Taiwan. And, and uh, no, this is, this is, I mean, this is all very, very tense time uh, as we speak. And we have we dare not speak about coronavirus. I was going to loop back to the interview with Roderick as well as general theorizing and and how it's you know mostly a waste of time and a distraction from from particularities. He was talking about the current power of right-wing populism and how he thinks he has it has more economic roots and that the conflict over identity and values is more in alignment than the foundation of this. I'm going to use this as the example but that's not necessarily the content that you know I want to discuss but do you think there's a problem across the board of discussion 
that it's overly focused on identity and values and not going deep enough into more tangible reasons like economics, but also, you know, using more data-based evidence, you know, do you think it's unnecessarily focused on identity and values despite more tangible things being more discernible? That's a really, really interesting and difficult question. So I I think I'm definitely with Broderick that in in a way, a counterfactual in which uh, people have satisfying lives and good jobs, probably a counterfactual in which identity issues are much less present. On the other hand, you know, what happens, let's let's go back to the world in which people have got, uh, you know, we've solved the problem that we started with, the superfluous jobs, the, the mundane jobs are being done by our slaves, the machines, and uh, we all have decent means of subsistence, all the rest of it, then actually um, what stuff is then going to be, uh, what are our lives going to be full of? Well, cultural stuff surely is, is, there's something very, very human about these questions of identity, isn't there? I wonder also whether identity isn't a luxury good and that we're enjoying more and more of it, as it were. I guess that I, I probably want to take that back. I don't think identity is a luxury good. And it's not really what I mean, because uh, just as I was thinking that, I was thinking, okay, so what's the first big grabbing of conscience of identity? It's, it's you know, Moses in Egypt saying, 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 Pharaoh, let my people free. You know, the, my people is a, is a statement of identity. That wasn't at a time, that wasn't in a luxurious context, right? I do wonder do have many more hours in the day. We spend many more hours in the day consuming cultural artifacts, often on our phones, etc. And that has been one of the mediums through which questions of identity have been have gained uh, gained prominence and currency. So I, I guess I think that it's complicated. As to your question about, because you also linked that question to, to a data question, saying, look, you know, you're, you're kind of being a good materialist saying, you know, get get the facts, get the data, care about atoms, not bits. Well, of course, we can do that. Uh, we can we can get the data on the identity stuff now. This is one of the wonderful things about now using the, using the technology as tool rather than as machine. You know, we can now explore text in a way we've never explored it before. And we can we can track, you know, you know, nationalist, uh, separatist sentiment in UK media and online, and measure it and do things to it, and 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 in a way in which we've 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 never done before. And of course, part of you know that power of doing th- doing these things with tech, with text and with emotion, is also part of the power which Facebook deploys in serving you materials which then go and stoke these identitarian um, uh, concerns. So I think it's complicated as to whether I'm, you know, I, I think that I think that culture is real and has and has real consequences. And I think that it's not only real, but it's more and more part of the world that we can measure and some people can manipulate. I love that I turned you into an optimist for the end. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? <laughs> On the contrary, I, I think it was the first time I've, I've heard to I've heard you to say it, it's complicated. <laughs> 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 but um, you probed a 
question which is linked to something that I've been thinking for the past couple of months, more than that. And that's that we're, uh, you know, it's related to the data and to the accessibility of the data. What would you say to someone <laughs> who would say that we, we might be falling prey to the same fallacy as, as Emil Durkheim or, or, or August Comte? You know, when, when they also were fascinating by, by the new tools that, that what they call social physique or sociology, uh, what, they, what it gave them. And uh, are we different now? Because honestly, this is something that keeps bothering me. You know, we, we designed Gary five years ago with, with, the, with, the, uh, with the aim to overcome, you know, some shortcomings of the social sciences. But thinking at it, uh, about it from the more philosophical point of view, we've been there, you know, 200 years ago already. So what, what would you say to that? Of course. I mean, uh, well, uh, of course, it's a worry and I completely share it. I guess that there are several levels and layers. I mean, in some ways, you say that Kant and Durkheim, you know, have, you know, were just wrong. Kant, well, I think Kant was weird person uh, per se but but i didn't i didn't say they were wrong it's just that there were i think stronger limits to what they were trying to do uh than they would uh realize yes so so limits so the question the question you're posing is what are the limits to social understanding and to society's self-understanding as it were what i think is that it's not that social understanding is impossible but it's that every time you get to a level of social understanding that then makes the social whole itself more complex, right? And requiring another level and layer of understanding. And one thing that the kind of more laissez-faire types, economist types think that they won the argument about economic planning. They won it intellectually in the 1930s in the debates between Hayek and Lang and they won it actually with the fall of um, the Soviet system. And they think that that's just got done, right? Now, I'm, I think that the data and technology revolution brings the calculation debate back into question. That argument was, it was a contingent win. It was, you couldn't plan and organize things that were very complicated with the means at your disposal then. We now have enormously greater means for doing tasks which are quite, which are simple, right? When we're not talking about, you know, uh, writing great works of literature, we're talking about, you know, scheduling tasks. Well, we are better today at scheduling tasks and it's therefore possible to do them on a much uh, greater scale without decentralized human uh, involvement. And that's precisely why, in a sense, we have the all, all the monopoly issues that, that we were talking about earlier. That's fine. So we revisit. So there were, there were bits of social understanding which improve. But there are, of course, uh, huge areas of social understanding which don't. And in a sense, the stuff that is being automated is stuff that is, as it were, has no mysteries anymore. Obviously, the culture stuff, obviously, the identity stuff, obviously, how people react to their own understanding of the position that they're in. These things are in the world of meanings. They're self-referential. They're all these things which we absolutely don't have a handle on. But there are huge bits of the social whole which we do have a better and better 
understanding of. And I think the economy is kind of, you know, the economy that the laissez-faire types had the economy as a mystical object, which you had to say, you know nothing about it. I think that's becoming a less mystical object, but we have the mystical objects of, uh, of meaning, of culture, of interpretation, of self-understanding. All these still remain as uh, objects that are extremely difficult to probe. Last quick question. You're, you have the power over tomorrow's headlines on every newspaper. What's everyone going to read tomorrow? Oh, I want to see that uh, vaccine take-up rates are very, very high. That not only the EU and the UK, but the US, China, India, South Africa have all started antitrust uh, proceedings against the platforms. And that there's a, a large international credible effort to organize uh, and thrash out how we're going to do human rights and data sharing in a way that works for, for, for all of us and across borders. Thank you for listening. Next week, we'll hear from Benny Moles, science journalist specialized in robots, artificial intelligence, and the human brain. He studied physics and philosophy and previously authored Turing's Tango on Artificial Intelligence. Until then, have a great day.